0: ASN President-elect Ronald Falk talks with R. Tyler Miller, Susan E. Quaggin, and Michelle A. Josephson. Friday's presentations provided a range of exciting topics, including new and transformative medical technologies. Don't forget to view meeting photos on the ASN Flickr site, and check ASN Twitter and Facebook for comments and assessments from your colleagues attending Kidney Week.
1: Hello, this is Ron Falk, President-elect of the American Society of Nephrology, and we are now on our second day of Kidney Week, Friday, November the 11th. And with me today are three wonderful individuals, and I'll have them introduce themselves. Michelle. I'm Michelle Josephson from the University of Chicago. And you have an expertise in transplantation. Yes, I'm a transplant nephrologist. Right. Sue.
2: I'm Susan Quaggin. I'm from the University of Toronto. I'm a nephrologist and a researcher.
0: And I'm Tyler Miller from Case Western Reserve on the north coast of the U.S. And I primarily do basic research, but I'm also a section chief
1: at a VA hospital in Cleveland. So welcome to all of you. It was a wonderful day today at Kidney Week. We heard all sorts of interesting things. What was the one thing you heard today that was most fun or most interesting?
3: Well, actually, I think the day started out with quite a highlight. I, I really enjoyed the uh, state-of-the-art presentation by Bob Langer. I thought that was actually it was fantastic for a number of reasons. One is he was a great speaker and very funny, very engaging, and really told the story very well. But also, I, I think he really showed how, how incredible the interaction can be between technology and, um, and biology. It, it was really phenomenal.
1: So this was an engineer who has, over the course of many decades, figured out all sorts of applications of polymers in, the, uh, in medical uses. From anti-angiogenic factors on polymers in the eye to uh, wafers that could go on brain lesions, it was an astonishing and funny talk.
3: No, I, I agree, and actually, I had followed uh, Judah Falkman's work a little bit, so it was it was really interesting to see the connection and what the, you know what they had done together.
1: What I especially enjoyed were the number of times that he went to a grant review process and they told him he couldn't do what <laughs> the, he said he was going to do. And then finally, after 20 years later, it was FDA approved. He apparently has all sorts of patents in a number of applications of polymer polymers to medicinal medicine.
0: Yeah, I wondered where the NIH people
1: were in that talk. <laughs> They were in the audience. (laughs) But it's not the NIH people. It's all of us who sit on study sections who say no to wonderful new ideas.
3: But, you know, it also spoke to the resiliency that he had. He knew he had a good idea and he wasn't going to give up. He just kept at it.
1: Self-deprecating to the maximum (laughs) as well. (laughs) Yes.
3: Uh, But
1: but (laughs) institutions that would and
0: could support him. That was an important
1: part of it. Yes. Right. Sue, what was the highlight of your day?
2: I think uh, the highlight of my day was the hot topic session this morning, which described two very different um, advances, really, in nephrology. Uh, One was looking at the hemolytic uremic syndrome, the Shiga toxin outbreak in Germany, and the other was uh, ablation of renal nerves to treat refractory hypertension. Both parts of the session were outstanding.
1: So do you think that all of us are now going to want to ablate uh, renal nerves in order to decrease blood pressure?
2: Well, I think the the first speaker gave a terrific introduction and a lot of early data that looks very promising following renal ablation. However, the second talk, the the way it was set up this session, they had somebody do an editorial piece afterwards and put in some notes of caution as to how we might interpret the first study. So I think the question is still out there. There's a great clinical trial going on now, Simplicity 3. I think it's going to be very exciting to see how it all turns out.
1: So if you had hypertension, would you want your renal nerves ablated in 2011?
2: Well, if it meant I didn't have to take five drugs, I think I might go for it. I think one of the big questions is, is there reinnervation? So that's really a question that's out there. The, the follow-up hasn't been long enough to see what happens. And in experimental animals, the renal nerves grow back over time.
1: What happens in transplant patients, Michelle? Do renal nerves grow back?
3: As I understand, no, they they don't. And it's an interesting issue that the transplant is denervated. The patients get hypertension for other reasons, but um, they are denervated. But there certainly is work looking at taking out kidneys in patients who have refractory hyper- native kidneys and patients who have refractory hypertension uh, prior to transplant if it's not controllable. It's not so much the... Approach anymore. But well, that was an old tradition. And
0: in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a lot of work done with renal artery disease where they did what was called bench surgery. And they would actually take the kidney out, repair the medium and small arteries, and then put it back in. It didn't work very well, but it was the principle of taking out the kidney.
2: Yeah. The other thing that he showed that I thought was very interesting is that there were effects outside blood pressure. So effects on glycemic control, effects on cardiac function, cardiac fibrosis. So I think it's an interesting, you know, interesting thing to follow. And
3: also he thought maybe sleep
2: apnea. Yes, which, sleep apnea, that's right.
1: You know, renal nerves were a very hot topic in physiology a couple of decades ago and then it sort of fell out of favor, but this trial and this experience really suggests that renal nerves and feedback loops may have all sorts of implications that we really either forgot or never understood.
0: I miss that, but did they look at neuroendocrine markers? I
2: don't That's remember. That's a good one, You know they are and that was one of the things that in follow-up that they need to Look at down the road to see if there's re I'm not sure if it's the same thing, but looking at n- norepinephrine spillover from that.
1: Or angiotensin levels or uh, almosterone levels or.
2: I don't, I don't they remember. Didn't present it.
1: So, what vegetables can I eat? Are oh. any vegetables safe anymore? I thought it was just <laughs> stay, a raw hamburger I was supposed beans, to uh, stay avoid. Stay away from bean sprouts. <laughs> That's <Stay away from laughs>
2: where the seeds come from. But,
1: and yeah, German bean sprouts. Every every
2: German. Bean sprouts. <laughs> Actually, I think one of the the things that came out in the discussion after the uh, hemolytic uremic syndrome was, what about this superbug, so we now have this hypervirulent form of E. coli that carries a new gene uh, that's out there. So one of the questions raised, should we be worried about there's going to be more outbreaks You know, it's not eradicated.
1: And it's not just a kid disease because most of the experience that all of us have had uh, recently in North Carolina, again, at our state fair, uh, not this time from the petting zoo, but apparently from someplace else, there were children with hemolytic diarrhea-associated hemolytic uremic syndrome, some of whom ended up on dialysis, a similar sort of experience. But now in adults... Did they share any reason why adults were, were the target rather than kids?
2: Yeah, no, they, they certainly went through the epidemiology and the fact that females, fairly young adult healthy females, uh, were at risk. And that, that wasn't answered. That uh, was brought up.
3: See, I have my theory on that. Yeah, okay, let's My theory is that more women are going to eat
2: salads. Well, that was, but they didn't answer that. Yeah. Way, though, but that's.
1: Tyler, what was your favorite session today?
0: Mine was also the Bob Langer talk. I have an interest in um, mechanics and biology, and what I've seen is more and more interest in uh, sort of the universe of, of medical science. As physicians, we often think in terms of really chemical signaling. And he didn't really talk much about this, but I think it fits. At the end, when he was talking about recreating organs and using scaffolds for growth of cells, there's a lot to the mechanical environment of stem cell niches. And then yesterday, Catalin Schustak was talking about epigenetics and effects on adhesion, which had not also being mechanical factors. So I found the whole thing that you could synthetically or mechanically provide an appropriate environment for cell growth really fascinating.
1: And potentially the way to regenerate nerves and uh, blood vessels and perhaps downstream lots of other organs based on a, a physical scaffold that cells then get to attach to.
0: Yes, but the
3: cells still seem to know what they want to do when they get there. That's the other very interesting part. Keep going. Okay, uh, the scaffolding issue is actually really interesting because um, I've had an opportunity to hear Doris Taylor, I believe, um, the woman speak about her work that she's done in hearts, and actually I think in hearts it's, it's coming along very nicely. And um, I think it's going to be much harder for the kidney, though, because it's, it's much more complex. And, and you have the scaffolding, but how are you going to um, have
1: all of the correct approaches? The heart only has a few cell types, mostly muscle, not all the wonderful, intriguing cells that populate the kidney.
3: I went to a transplant session on antibody-mediated rejection, and um, that's because it's it's becoming such a big issue that those of us in transplant nephrology are dealing with, and. Um, and also because the uh, technology is changing so much, so I thought it would be really helpful to go to um, an overview session of that. And it was a wonderful session. They they talked about all of the approaches towards um, ass- all the new assays and um, the history of the assays. Uh, they also um, talked a, a bit about the uh, pathology and, and what to look at on biopsies, um, as well as different clinical approaches and and one of the things which circles back to the talk that we heard earlier in the Hot Topics session is they also talked about the use of occlusivab in antibody-mediated injection and how that's starting to be looked at to try to prevent complement destruction of the kidney.
1: So there were a lot of sessions on complement regulation and complement perturbation of one kind or another. What's in your mind the role of an anti C5 drug in the care of somebody with a with a transplant?
3: In that setting, where you do have antibody mediated rejection, it may end up being a very useful drug. I think it's it's going to be a very small set of folks, but the transplant community is really struggling with these patients who have antibody mediated rejection. We're not effectively treating it, and one of the reasons is because we're not think we're controlling the complement instruction that we get. And so this may, in fact, be a very
1: useful approach. What was the most fun thing you did today, Sue?
2: Well, uh, the most fun thing I did, maybe, uh, down, downloading the JSON app on the website.
1: Downloading the JSON app spoken as a JSON editor. What made you so excited about downloading the app?
2: Well, that's my first app I've ever downloaded, and uh, but it's a great way to look at the JSON articles actually, and it's free for the next 80 days to anyone. So you can download it either from the app store or from the ASN website.
1: And you can read articles on your phone, oh, on, on your iPad, whatever you want, right. How long did it take you to download this?
2: Uh, not that long. I called my son. I got some you know, help
1: anybody under the age of 20. So seriously, how with all of the uh, multimedia things that are occurring at the American Society of Nephrology, Twitter and Facebook and Flickr and app downloads, how are we going to educate some of our members how to best make use of these offerings?
2: Great question. I mean, I think probably having some younger uh, ASN members advise um, us, maybe have that. So
1: we should all bring our children uh, with us when we come. Or,
2: or fellows, and you know, <laughs> postdocs, and, and fellows are terrific as well.
1: Because now you don't have to miss a session since they're downloadable, and of course the abstracts are downloadable as well. So, Ty, what advice would you give to a young person who wants to figure out the best way of wending their way through this meeting? I like Michelle's
0: idea of doing something new that's a little bit out of your experience. And I think one of the things that's very difficult is trying to go from little bits of things to little bits of things, like session to session to session. So what I try to do is find some place or something that I don't know much about and just sit there and make sure that I listen to it for a period of time it's sort of like going to a cocktail party. You can say hello to everybody or you can actually have a useful conversation with a couple of them.
1: So Tyler, today is Veterans Day in the United States, Armistice Day elsewhere. You spend a lot of time at VA. Any news or thoughts from this meeting for those who've been in the armed forces? The VA nephrologists
0: really are a large group at this meeting. I think there were probably 200 who come. And we all pay special attention to dialysis and uh, to, uh, to care of patients with diabetes and hypertension.
3: Well, what What did you think about uh, the potential applicability of some of um, Langer's work in the future with respect to spinal cord injuries and or amputations and other such with, with trying to do regeneration? Well, certainly the spinal cord and neural injuries were fascinating because that's the biggest
0: problem of people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan.
1: There were two things in that talk. One was the effort to be able to regrow an ear. We saw a nose. We saw different shapes of a nose, but presumably people who've been injured could uh, make use of that technology. And the other really pretty phenomenal uh, Example was one you just related. Uh, primates and rodents who had a spinal cord injury really seemed to be made much better. At least in animals, this appeared to be made much better by the technology that he's developing. So it's 2011, so it's going to be 2031, and I'm going to be doddering around, hopefully, in one way or the other. What's the practice of nephrology going to be like, based on what you heard today?
2: Well, one of the sessions that I went to, and I've heard quite a bit about at this meeting, which I didn't know about, before is microparticles and the role of microparticles in both diagnosis, prognosis, disease, progression. Um, I thought it was fascinating, but it's clear that we're still at a very early stage of understanding what they do. So we can identify them, and there were a number of talks today talking about microparticles made from endothelial cells, neutrophils, um, from podocytes things that actually play a role in ankyovasculitis, a very important uh, disease. But it's clear that we don't know if they're bad or if they're good. We can perhaps remove them with plasmapheresis and current therapies. But even the half-life and what they actually mean isn't known, but we can measure them.
1: And interesting with a microparticle, they may actually be able to get inside of another cell and change the uh, machinery of that other cell either by interacting with message or perhaps by protein expression.
3: If you think back 20 years, you think back to 1991, you think about the transplant medications and drugs that we use, they weren't that much different. I think actually potentially 20 years from now, we are going to be looking at a whole new paradigm, different approach, use of biologics, things that are, are a bit different than we're doing now. And hopefully, potentially even, we've we will have made some progress in tolerance. I wonder, too, what renal
0: disease will be in 20 years. What renal disease is, or what nephrologists do, has changed because of the population. The dialysis population now is very different from what it was 20 years ago, and my guess is it will be different again in the future. And as Joe Bonventry was talking about yesterday, what's considered within the purview of nephrology was different 20 years ago, and it probably will be again in the future. And I agree that um, there are things, what we're trying to talk about here is things that will be new and interesting and give nephrology life, so that will be an exciting field. And I think things like the complement pathway to so the extent that we can make that nephrology, we'll be in good
1: shape. Well, thank all of you for spending this evening with us. This is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology.